I'm Carrie Miller, and each week we add a deep track, a book interview from the archives that parallels the themes of the new discussion. This week, as we anticipate a conversation with theologian Christina Cleveland about a faith that she re-centered around her identity as a black woman, we're bringing you a March 2021 show with Jamar Tisby. His book calls Christians to get off the sidelines and actively work to confront racial injustice. He is an imaginative thinker and dynamic speaker. Here's Jamar Tisby. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. Glad to have you listening in on this Friday morning. Jury selection will begin next week for Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who is on trial for killing George Floyd. Mr. Floyd died on May 25th after being pinned beneath Chauvin's knee for more than eight minutes. Three other officers will be tried later this summer. Theologian and writer Jamar Tisby witnessed what happened in the days and weeks that followed Floyd's death and wrote this, Something is different this time. Today, a conversation about whether he is still convinced of that and why Christians must take up the fight against racism and white supremacy. Mr. Tisby asks in his new book, what sparks the desire for people to see change? How does someone develop a burden to combat racism? As Jamar Tisby joins us again on the show, I'd like to hear from you. In these months after George Floyd's death, did your church community discuss the urgent questions that arose from the protests and demands for change. Now, let me say this. Jamar's book is particularly aimed at Christians, but I want to open up this conversation to a lot of congregational communities. So I want to know whether your community, your congregation, discussed some of the urgent questions that came up from the killing, the protest, and the demands for change— And then did your congregation do more than just discuss it? I think we'd both be really interested in hearing what followed. Here's the phone number 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. And on Twitter, it's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Jamar Tisby is the CEO of The Witness and the author of the new book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Towards Racial Justice. And he's with us from Arkansas. Jamar, really a pleasure to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me for this important topic. You say that as you watched the demonstrations here in Minneapolis and then across the country erupt, many of them peaceful, some of them destructive, you felt, quote, encouraged, exhausted, excited and skeptical all at once. So we are now moving quickly towards the beginning of the trial of Derek Chauvin. Take your temperature again. Are are you feeling that cluster of emotions? What would you say? I am still feeling pretty much that exact same cluster of emotions. As we look at the historic uprisings of 2020, and when I was writing the book, this was sort of all happening in real time, it did feel like something was different. I mean, in my lifetime, sort of in older millennial, uh, this moment, uh, this era feels very ripe with possibilities. Um, We saw really 
historic uprisings in terms of their scope, millions upon millions of people throughout the nation participating in demonstrations and even internationally. Many instances we saw that these crowds were made up of predominantly white people, Mm -hmm. all supporting black lives. And this is something that hasn't been common in the history of our nation. And I think it signals at least the opportunity for important changes. Yeah, I, I was curious about why it felt different this time and whether it does, you know, it does still feel different or whether you see us kind of falling back into our similar patterns. And I think we can see that in some ways in the politics that followed. Do you give me a sense first, though, about why it felt so different? Well, you you can look at some of what I just mentioned before. So first of all, the scope of it, right? So we're used to protests and demonstrations sort of happening in a chronologically proximate time frame to the incident. So it might last a weekend, a couple of weeks. We saw protests last year going on for months and months and months. We saw them spilling over, not just in Minneapolis, but around the country. Of course, there's a confluence of events from the lynching of Ahmaud Arbery to the murder of Breonna Taylor and other events, right? Uh, But also, like I said, the composition of the crowds that were protesting, the number of people protesting. And then we also saw some pretty significant changes. Some would sort of diminish the importance of these changes as, quote, merely symbolic. But I think symbols are important because symbols are tell the stories. Symbols shape the narratives of our society. And so one of the most important changes was very symbolic. It was the state of Mississippi finally changing its racist white supremacist flag, which had the Confederate battle emblem on it, the last state in the union to have it. Understand that flag has flown over the state of Mississippi, which has the highest proportion of black people of any state in the union. It has flown since 1894. Hmm. And there's a reason it finally came down in 2020. Uh, We got a call here from Tom in Virginia who says, I'm a second generation preacher's kid and I left the church that my family would attend this past year because the congregation drove off the pastor who was progressive. I love that congregation, but now I feel very churchless. I don't feel like I have that community now. I think he's touching on something that you've dug into in the book, which is it's been comfortable in a lot of church Christian for your purposes, but in a lot of church and faith congregations, and bringing in this uncomfortable, critical, uh, you know, move for change is going to make, is probably going to make congregants and communities feel disoriented. Well, what can we do about it? Somewhat powerless, maybe. Uh, You know, no, I don't want to sit on the sidelines, but what would we really what could we really do to make a difference? So are, are you getting a sense that we're going to see this kind of tension also uh, play out inside congregational communities? Absolutely. It has been playing out and we're seeing it happen publicly more and more. So what 
is also opportune about this moment or what in some ways feels different about this moment is the moral clarity of the issues that we're dealing with, the moral clarity, by which I mean, you know, some of, some of what we're looking at is, was the 2020 presidential election legitimate? which is not really a matter of debate when you look at the data, the research, the rulings by judges from across the political spectrum, right? And so where you fall down on an issue like that, whether masks are helpful or if it is impinging on personal freedom, again, not really issues of personal opinion when you look at the science and the data, but these are sort of... um, bellwethers. They're signals for the deeper convictions people hold. And what it's doing is forcing people to declare themselves on issues of justice, on issues of race. And it's happening within our congregations so that people you sit next to in the pews, you pray with, you've come to find they hold deeply different beliefs that you do. And it may be untenable to remain in those spaces. Call from Chris in St. Paul. Hi, Chris. I'm glad you called. Hey, yeah. I go to a very small community church called House of Mercy in St. Paul. They've been around for about 20 years or so. Uh-huh. And from the get-go, it was such a highly thoughtful, non-shaming-based, open Christian environment that has it not been for them, I don't think I would be even a part of any religious community whatsoever. But, like, for example, in 2016, it was, like, a mass peaceful protest for the Women's March. Um, After George Floyd, it was, like, the majority of the church went to a number of protests that were peaceful continuously throughout that entire process, as well as they hosted with Bethlehem Lutheran, because they're on Snelling and University, but they hosted, like, a community-based art project that was led by, I really, I apologize, I do not know the artist's name, but it was like tons of murals that were around the church. I mean, it's, it's a community that forever, since it started its inception, has been very thoughtful. It had a very wide lens and a wide scope to equity and justice. And again, that's like the only reason that I could even be involved with religion right now is because of that specific community and their thoughtfulness too. Yeah, Chris, I, I think your examples are really valuable here because, Jamar, correct me if I'm wrong, you would say, and that's a start, <laughs> but <laughs> what right. else? Okay, go ahead. Right. Well, so number one, I think there are a lot of people who are looking for churches that are committed to racial justice in particular, but more broadly, uh, issues of public justice, whether that be around the environment or healthcare or other issues. And it is a sign of, um, putting your faith into action. You know, the Bible says that faith without works is dead. And I think there are a lot of people who are looking for faith communities that are that are willing to actually live out what they preach, live out what their sacred texts teach. And so uh, the caller had some great examples of ways churches can get involved and come alongside movements. But there's a lot more to do. Um, One thing that I propose in the book is a framework called the ARC of Racial Justice, and that's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And I think you need all three 
to have a holistic approach to racial justice. And if we run through our congregation or our faith community, and uh, first of all, do we have a plan for racial justice? And secondly, uh, what are we doing to build awareness about race and racism and issues of justice? What are we doing to forge relationships that are meaningful across racial and ethnic lines? And how can we commit to anti-racist action on a policy level and not just a personal level? Let, let me come back to the relationship side of that, because I think the last time you were on with us, we talked, as as many do, about how white Sunday mornings are. Um when you say relationships across different faiths and different communities, give me a practical example of how you imagining this working and really furthering the goal here of courageous Christianity. A couple of things. One, uh, I want to make it clear that we don't stop at relationships. Oftentimes, white people and white Christians in particular think that racism is merely an individual and interpersonal issue of attitudes, uh, you know, being mean to someone else, using a racial epithet, etc. Therefore, if I'm nice to people, if some of my best friends are black, you know, these are some of the tropes that you hear, then I'm not racist and I'm not part of the problem. So, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying um, relationships are essential, but they're they're not the only part of fighting racism. But the challenge is, how do you forge authentic, meaningful relationships uh, of equity and not just treat people as projects? Oh, you're you're black, or you're another person of color. I want you to be my friend. <laughs> um, I think to do that, you've got to get involved in groups that are about something beyond simply diversity. Mm -hmm. um, so so think of a sports team, right? Your, your goal or your objective is to win the game, beat the other team. And it is in pursuit of that goal or objective that you become a community, that you forge friendships and relationships. So then looking at your local town, uh, your city and saying, where are those teams, if you will, whether that is a civic club, a parent-teacher association, some other group that has assembled for some broader and ongoing purpose, but is putting you in meaningful contact with people who are different. And how can we cultivate those kinds of relationships? Jamar Tisby is with us this morning. If you've just joined the show and we are talking about his new book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. And if you missed the beginning of the show, Jamar opens the book talking about witnessing what happened here in Minneapolis with the death of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd by Officer Derek Chauvin, and believing as he watched these demonstrations and protests spread across the country, believing something was different, that we were in a moment of, two, of true transformation on these issues of racism. Now calling on churches to step up, calling on Christian communities, but I'm asking to hear from you in whatever congregate community, faith community you're in. How do brave leaders and brave congregations step up to do some of the work that Jamar is describing here? And, and I've been curious about whether your faith community is doing that. Are you concerned that you, they say the right things, you say the right things, you have good intentions, and that's kind of where the work ends? 800-242-2828, 651-227-6000. And on Twitter, 
at Carrie NPR. Stephanie says on Twitter, I've seen three different communities I've been a, a part of respond to this call in varying ways. One thing I look for is commitment to changes in internal systems and policies and not just outward displays of anti-racism that help with marketing or the bottom line to John in New York City. Hi, John. Good morning, Carrie. I would like to speak to the idea of uh, maybe the most brave, and I would I would preface this with my community, I would identify as agnostic and atheist, and uh, but coming from a Christian background, so I say this with all respect, the bravest thing that could happen in the world today in which multiculturalism and multi-ethnic groups are joining together in, in living situations and that that will not change moving forward, we are the most brave when we admit that our received traditions from millennia ago are inherently exclusive and that most of the bloodshed and pain and suffering that has existed in the civilized world grows from exclusivity in groups and that we should work harder for secular, rational uh, coexistence as a means to uh, come together without without as many uh, barriers as a human community. Uh, yeah, thank you, John. Jamar, an acknowledgement there that religious can be exclusionary and corrosive. I think you you speak to this when you talk about how often Christians have been complicit with historical bigotry. Absolutely. Wrote a whole book about it, in fact. <laughs> um, my first book, The Color of Compromise, is about the ways that Christians, and specifically white Christians in the United States, have been racially exclusionary and have in various ways helped to form and prop up a, uh, a society based on racial divisions. But I will say that I, I think that sort of any ideology, any sort of deeply held uh, belief system, whether it's explicitly religious or spiritual or not, can be exclusionary. Um, I would also press us to think in more expansive terms about a religion such as Christianity. I wrote um, on Twitter this morning that Christianity is not synonymous with white American evangelicalism. Uh, that in fact it's a global religion, and that in many traditions uh, uh, of Christianity, especially among marginalized and oppressed groups, it has been uh, a, a force for liberation and openness and inclusion, not perfectly, but certainly characterized by some of those things. Jamar, um, I want to put uh, put a real practical example in front of you, because I've been thinking about this a lot. We've recently talked about it. We're going to be doing more conversations on this show about it, and that is the wave of voter suppression bills and laws that have followed the 2020 election, particularly in some of the battleground states. Many of these laws are nothing more than proposed legislation to stop often people from color from expressing their right to vote. Now, in a situation like that, what does a church do? Because I think some pastors, and I, boy, I'd love to hear from some pastors on this this morning, um, you know, might shy away from these are, these are debates going on in political venues, but they have a moral imperative at the center of them. 
So so let's talk about what churches can do about that. I am so glad you brought up uh, these efforts at voter suppression, because I think this is one of the most important topics and issues for people of faith to get involved in. In terms of Christianity, especially if we're talking about predominantly white churches and denominations, there is a lot of work to do. First of all, there's the work of sort of re-educating many congregations. One thing that we may discuss or not is uh, Christian nationalism. And the ways that has been brought to the fore in the past several months, especially, uh, another way to to help re-educate a congregation is to take away the stigma of talking about politics at all. So many Christian leaders, pastors, and teachers won't broach the subject of politics because it's seen as too divisive or you're seen as automatically partisan understand this is very selective. They'll, they'll, they'll bring up certain political issues, but, but certainly not others like race or voting rights. And, and voting rights is something that's nonpartisan. It's simply part of being in a democracy, lowercase d, right? Being a citizen. And we should, right. Being a citizen. And it is a right that is guaranteed. And so we should be making it easier for people to vote and not harder. And this is a baldly partisan effort on the part of the GOP to restrict voting among populations who don't typically vote for them. And that can be named, and it should be named as a as a start in congregations and faith communities. Let me invite some church leaders and pastors into this conversation, because I'd like to hear from you about how you manage the moral versus the political Do you do, as Jamar Tisby is suggesting, shy away from making the moral case for something that sounds overtly political? How do you talk about that with your faith community? 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. To Allison in Edina. Hi, Allison. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Of course. Um, I am a member of a fairly progressive congregation with a pretty conservative evangelical background. Um, and I originally was going to ask about the dichotomy between, you know, conservative theologically and liberal theologically communities and how they land on social justice issues or are silent, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. But, but talking about how the church responds to voting, um, my community, uh, Woodland Hills Church, in St. Paul, on the border of Maplewood, the pastor there was fairly openly, um, it's, it's got Anabaptist roots, so like uh, avoiding involvement in government in general. So five years ago, he would have said, you know, I don't, like the Lord convicted me to not to abstain from voting because I can't get involved without wow. um, feeling like I'm picking a team or us versus them, or, you know, I, I get buy-in on a certain candidate, and it's just not good for my faith. Um, but right before 2016, um, he actually had a heart-to-heart with the congregation and just said, it's not about that. It's a privilege to say that I choose not to vote. And if I actually look at my brothers and sisters and I see what is at stake for them in these elections, I absolutely have to vote. And it was a, it was a poignant moment for the congregation. Um, and it, it launched all sorts of great conversations. Um, but 
but I just, yeah, I wanted to bring I'm that glad. up as far as how church leadership is, is addressing it. Jamar, what do you think of Allison's example? I think it's a powerful example, and I think it demonstrates that not voting or not speaking up is not, in fact, not being political. Those are political stances. Um, and typically, uh, the silence or the refusal to get involved supports the status quo, which in many cases is unjust. Now, I say that with complete respect for the Anabaptist tradition and people who, out of religious conviction, do not feel they can um, get involved in in politics in traditional ways like voting. Uh, but we do need to recognize, as that pastor did, that it is in some cases a form of privilege, that I don't have to get involved because the issues at stake aren't affecting my day-to-day life, aren't adversely impacting me or my family. And to me, it's part of loving one's neighbor to be concerned about the laws and policies that structure the way we interact with one another. And even if a particular issue doesn't affect me personally or adversely, for the sake of my neighbor, I want to get involved and do what leads to good for them, do what leads to flourishing for them. And that's why I participate. Jamar Tisby is with us this morning. We're talking about his new book, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Welcoming some of the examples that are coming in from your own church community. I'd still like to hear from some church leaders, some faith community leaders who are wrestling with this idea of the bringing your congregation into a discussion about the moral versus the political. Because as Jamar has acknowledged, many church leaders stay away from what can be overtly seen as political. But I brought up an example of these voter suppression laws that are appearing in many state capitals. What is the what is a church community's, what is a faith leader's role in a situation like that. Uh, Jamar, I just want to read something before we go back to the phones. And I think we are hearing from some faith leaders here. Uh, I wondered if you saw this Emory University theology student, Dante Stewart, op-ed in the Washington Post about being a black man giving guidance to white churches. I pulled out uh, a couple graphs of what he wrote. Whenever I spoke to white churches, either in the one that I attended for the time or other local churches in my city, congregants wanted some way to feel better about this country. Haven't we made so much progress in this country, they asked. We gave you a black president. I have black friends. Black men need to stop killing black men. It's a sin problem, not a skin problem. They wanted assurance that everything about themselves and our country assurance that white supremacy hadn't fundamentally shaped themselves or their religion was okay. They wanted to find a reason for some sort of optimism amid tragedy. And I thought about how we started the conversation where I know we're hearing from people who are saying, my church is doing classes on this. We're having discussions on this. And you said, that's the beginning, and I, I feel like you're echoing what, what Dante Stewart is saying here. 
That's exactly right. That that is the beginning. I mean, first of all, there's a whole lot of deconstruction to to do among many Christians in the United States, which uh, Dante was alluding to. You hear the common objections that basically we've made all this progress. Why are you still bringing up race? The the accusation that the people still talking about race are the ones sowing division as if it's not racism itself. Those are harmful ideas that that must be. Uh, deconstructed and built on a healthier foundation. But then beyond the teaching, beyond the preaching, beyond the statements, there's so much more work to do. Uh, one of the things that raises the ire of many people is this word reparations, uh, which is back in the national conversation now as the federal government debates on whether to have a commission to study the problem and the issue of uh, dispersing reparations. But these conversations uh, can happen in church is too, there's no real reason why faith communities have to wait on the government to act uh, to help address the economic disparities that were brought on by racism and white supremacy. So in the book, I talk about what does it look like to steward your church's budget for justice? How do we allocate things, not just towards sort of mercy ministry or missions, but rectifying uh, uh, inequalities uh, in terms of wealth that were brought on by prejudice and bigotry? What does it look like to work for immigration reform as a congregation, especially those situated in communities with uh, large immigrant populations or near the border? Those are the kinds of turns that, that churches and faith communities need to be considering as we are in this very uh, opportune moment for change. Classes are great. Then there's the rest of it. <laughs> I think I hear you saying. Um, right. Let me grab a call here from Rick in St. Paul. Rick, it sounds like you're a church leader. Is that right? Yes. Um, I'm a United Church of Christ pastor in Falcon Heights. Um, and uh, a number of my members and I have become involved in an organization called Isaiah um, that works uh, statewide for um, making change happen among people of faith. We are allied with the Muslim Coalition, Jewish Community Action, um, Black Barbershops and Congregations, and um, uh, other co parts of the coalition. And I, I think one of the things we started before the November election, we started in 2018, um, and I found as I approached members of my church about uh, getting involved in Isaiah, one of the things that was a real important thing is people really, really needed to find their agency. They needed to be able to claim their own self-interest, which I find upper middle class educated white people, they say, I'm for all of it, but they don't discover what their personal stake is for those themselves and those they love in why change should happen, why we should deal with race. It, it has to go beyond uh, it's a good thing to do, or the Bible says um, that's a good place to start. But if you don't find your personal stake mm -hmm. in why we need to deal with white supremacy, um, that's what really powers change. Uh, that sounds like, Rick, that that is a, a challenge and a calling for you to be explicit about that. Right. Maybe yes. more than you'd initially be comfortable with. Have you have you found a way to do that? 
Well, I find being active um, in community organizing and being public, taking the risk of going public with saying this is a faith matter um, and, uh, you know, being part of demonstrations and contacting my legislators on a regular basis and all the other work that we do, um, that powers my preaching. I feel more authentic because I'm actually doing what I'm saying people should do. Jamar, what do you hear? Absolutely. That, that authenticity that arises from proximity to people who face oppression is really what drives preaching, teaching, the shape of our congregation. I think the pastor is making a crucial point. A lot of people will agree in principle that these issues of racial justice are, are, are good and that we need to do something about them. But that personal stake is so often missing because we live such segregated lives in such homogenous communities, whether our residential areas, our schools, our churches, which means the realities for people who are poor, black folks, brown folks, whoever it might be, those are distant realities from us. So then how do you create sort of a personal burden and a personal stake to get involved? And oftentimes that comes through participating in groups, deep, authentic friendships and relationships with people who are different so that you realize we live in different Americas oftentimes based on our skin color or our socioeconomic position. And even though I may not be in that same position, I can empathize and I can act in solidarity with those who are. I think you alluded to this a little earlier, but you write about racial justice resistors and you say these are people who cloak their resistance and assurances that they get it. They aren't racist and they aren't the problem. And and the advice that you give, uh, you know, it sounded a lot like the kind of political reconciliation advice we get. Don't patronize trade information be respectful. You know, I was a little surprised to to read about the patience that that requires and and the challenge that that is if you are a congregation and a church leader on the move and you want to do something urgently. How did you come to that kind of advice? So that section of the book is building off of the research of a professor professor at uh, the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, and uh, she gives three sort of ways to to talk to people who are resistant to whatever you're talking about. In her case, it was climate change. And the first thing she says is decide whether it's worth engaging. Decide whether it's worth engaging, which means, you know, if this is a argument or a debate that's happening over social media, somebody saying racism isn't a thing or, you know, disagreeing with this idea that we should be fighting for racial justice, that's probably not a conversation that you're going to make much headway in. And so you don't want to spend much time or energy there. Uh, there are other relationships, um, n- not online, that you still may not want to engage in because it's a bad faith conversation. The person isn't approaching it with an open mind and a willingness to change based on new information. So, so that input is more for when you do decide to engage. Mm-hmm. There are some relationships we can't avoid. It could be a parent, a spouse, uh, f- uh, co-workers. We're just around these folks. So then what do you do when you have that conversation? Well, number one, 
you can't walk into it with an attitude of contempt. That is going to derail any conversation and any ability to, to come to a greater understanding. And then number two, instead of just shoving a book or an article or data in their face, say, well, you know, tell me where you got your information. Show me how you are shaping your opinions. And here's some of what helps me shape my opinions. And let's come together and talk about this. Now, all of that only comes after you've decide whether it's even worth engaging mm-hmm. at all. I mean, it sounds a little we did a show recently on disinformation, a, a short series. And it sounds also like the advice that you you do, you pursue with people who are pretty enmeshed in conspiracy theories. Lead this with is respect. what we're dealing yeah. with. Yes, yeah. yes. We're dealing with misinformation. This is not, you know, justice is not a difference of opinion. It's either injustice or justice, and justice takes sides. So, so a lot of this work is working with people, if you have to, um, who are believing conspiracy theories, who are immersed in what I call uh, a a totally different epistemological ecosystem. They're getting all of their news, all of their information from sites that are more concerned about gaining attention and traffic through polemics than actual data, details, and reporting the news. And that is very, very difficult to get through to people. And in the cases where you must interact with folks like that, it, it, it is a patient, long process of untangling all of the misinformation that has gripped not only their minds, but oftentimes their hearts as well. Call from Pat in Deep Haven. Hi, Pat. I really appreciate you waiting. Oh, no problem. I'm, I'm glad I get a chance to talk to Jamar. Jamar, I'm part of your Facebook book study group. All right. Hey, Pat. Yeah. Yeah, I I just happened to catch you today. I'm so happy to do that. Say, would you talk about that? My husband and I have had to leave our church um, because they have rejected the Black Lives Matter movement based on the connection to Marxism of the Black Lives Matter Foundation founders. And that's, you know, it's, I, it's, it's been very disheartening for us because, um, well, again, that's been our church family for a while, and they took a, a hard stance on um, just the gospel being the answer, and um, Jesus taught that we're all we're all one um, in his, in God's eyes, which we are, but. Unfortunately, in the United States, not everybody, you know, follows what the Bible says. It, it, and Pat, if I might, we're a little short on time. Um, I think I hear what you're saying. Jamar, I don't want to go down into this Marxist thing. It sounds like <laughs> an excuse. Uh, you, you know, yes, for, yes. Exactly what would you right. say? <laughs> so the first thing I ask when somebody brings up, well, we can't support Black Lives Matter because of X, Y, Z, name the reason. I ask, well, what are you doing about racial justice? And so often it's exactly what Pat was saying. They're saying, well, just preach the gospel. Just, you know, everybody's equal. It's what Martin Luther King Jr. called pious irrelevancies and vain trivialities. Like these are, these are flowery words. They're not actually doing anything to bring about equity. 
And so to Christians who object to, you know, the black freedom struggle under the current banner of Black Lives Matter, if you wanted an explicitly church-based or Christian movement, you should have started it yourself kind of a thing. And um, there's nothing that says we can't partner with people who have different beliefs, different persuasions on different topics in pursuit of a common goal, in this case being racial justice. Dennis says on Twitter, I first attended Falcon Heights UCC when they hosted a community service right after Philando Castile was killed in 2016. We've been attending ever since. Churches have a huge role to play in encouraging racial openness and justice. Jamar, you said something a little earlier about evangelicalism, and we know what a potent force that has been in Republican politics. And I was reading something and listening to something that Ed Stetzer, who heads up the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, has been talking about, about evangelicals, race, the support for Trump, and the support for, I think you alluded to this, the the white nationalism uh, strain that has developed in Republican Party politics. So listen to what he has to say. If you ask today what's an evangelical to most people, I, I would want them to say someone who believes Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, and we're supposed to tell everyone about it. But for most people, they'd say, oh, those are those people who are really super supportive of the president no matter what he does. And I don't think that's what we want to be known for. That's certainly not what I want to be known for. And I think as this presidency is ending in tatters as it is, hopefully more and more evangelicals will say, you know, we should have seen earlier, we should have known better, we should have honored the Lord more in our actions these last four years. Do you see an indication that that's happening in evangelical communities, Jamar? Yes and no. So white evangelical support for the former president remains immensely high and and, and tends to be uh, the demographic that is most in support of not only the president, but of the conspiracy theories, such as the election was stolen or illegitimate. We're continuing to see massive support among people who identify as white evangelicals. At the same time, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. There are more and more uh, Christians of all races and ethnicities who feel alienated from these kinds of faith communities and leaders who insist on this unwavering support of the former president of the current GOP in its uh, present day manifestation. And they're saying, this is not for us. This is not what Jesus is about. This is not loving toward other people who bear the image of God. And I can no longer remain here. So I think there is what the Bible would call a faithful remnant. And it's never the majority of people. It's never this uh, massive uh, turning uh, toward toward issues of justice because it's costly to do so. It costs us comfort. It costs mm-hmm. us time, money, standing with our own uh, social networks and faith communities. But there is always a group of faithful, committed people who are concerned about both Jesus and justice and don't artificially dichotomize the two or pit them against each other. Call here from Luke in Minneapolis. Hi, good morning, Luke. Good morning. Tell me a little um, bit about you're you're a pastor, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a pastor in uh, North Minneapolis. I've been working in North Minneapolis in a predominantly black community for uh, 20 years. Um, and I heard Jamar Tisby was 
going to be on today, and I just thought I, I needed to call in. I Good. really appreciate Jamar and, and his prophetic prophetic voice, and um, I've been Thank you. trying to um, build a language for 20 years around um, evangelism and justice, keeping them together. I, I always think that they were never meant to be separated, that we have separated them, but we proclaim the gospel and we demonstrate it through pursuing justice. But I, I, uh, um, I, I really feel like our denomination uh, in the Covenant Church has, has really been leading at the, the denominational level and now really empowering our conferences. And so we've had uh, 400 pastors in our conference this past year that have been in um, all-white um, pathways uh, and a year commitment of, of taking on a posture of learning and, and growing uh, but that has been really uh, wonderful for me. One, it was a reminder to me that I love white people, um, and I'm a white pastor in, in an all-black community. But uh, just to see these pastors wrestle and want to pursue justice has been really encouraging to me. Uh, but the, the, there's a difference between the pastors that are leading and their churches, like the white nationalism mm-hmm. and the, the parasite of of white nationalism that has attached itself to Christianity. Mm. Um, I, I really feel like, um, um, you know, some we've heard from, from congregations that have said, you know, when you talk about racism, it's divisive. Um, mm-hmm. And I always have to stop and say, no, racism is divisive. And right. segregation and a segregating mindset was written into our laws to be divisive. Luke, um, uh, if I might, Luke, we, we are a little short on time, and you've said a lot, and I want to give Jamar some time to reflect on it, okay? Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you. Jamar, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Luke. I think you're bringing up some really important points. One, you know, that, that white pastors would commit sort of for the long haul. Uh, he mentioned a, a year-long uh, kind of conversation and, and, and pathway to talk about race, racism, racial justice. That's the kind of commitment that we need to make, you know, something that goes beyond Black History Month, something that goes beyond the news cycle. What are we doing to really, um, in the book, I call it orient your life toward racial justice. So that's an important point that we understand it's ongoing. Another important point that he made is there's a difference between uh, the, the pulpit and the pew the pastor and the congregation. And there's an old saying about uh, clarity in preaching that says, it, uh, mist in the pulpit is fog in the pews, mm. which on two levels means, you know, if, if, if you have a confused, unfocused message, it's going to be even more confused and unfocused among the congregation. And on another level, if you are sort of mild or wishy-washy in your declarations about racism and white supremacy, uh, that is going to be fog in the pews, which makes it incumbent upon the people who have the responsibility for preaching and teaching in churches to be very clear, very pointed, very explicit, knowing that from the moment those words leave your lips and, and make it to the hearers in your congregation and beyond, it's going to be diluted in some sense uh, because people have different opinions, different ideologies and understand it differently than you do. So it behooves that Christian leader or teacher to be as explicit and forthright as possible on matters of racial justice. I want to give Talene a chance to speak here. Talene, I really appreciate you waiting. I'm sorry I have about a minute, but uh, can can you tell us what you wanted to say in that? 
Sure. Hi. I'm uh, living in St. Paul right now, but I just graduated from Luther Seminary. Congrats. And I am waiting for my first call to be a pastor in the ELCA Church. I'm calling because I'd like to shout out that I feel like our seminary has done a really good job trying to get in voices of um, Black leaders, getting uh, womenist theologians, um, getting artists, um, and and different viewpoints um, into the training for pastors. And I think that's really important. I know that um, where I am right now, we're going to be taking the IBI, and I think that's a great way to start looking at yourself, where we are personally with our journey in race. Um, I also think that it's important to ask the youth. We're, um, I'm right now at St. Anthony Park Lutheran Church, and we're working with the youth, and they're actually guiding us in social justice matters. So housing insecurity is something they're very interested in, and it does come down to racism. We've done a lot of learning about redlining in the Twin Cities, and we've done a lot of learning about um who is homeless now, and how did this all come about? So it is a passion, and we know that we have a lot of work to do, um, but those are things that have helped us. Talene, I really appreciate the call, and I'm glad you waited and you could share that. Before we had to close, Jamar, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. Jamar Tismi's book is called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. 